You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind those lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg. And today we have a special double edition of this show for you. So later on this show, um, I'm going to be uh, talking to the author, lecturer, columnist and feminist. Uh, She's a well-known public figure. Jane Caro will join me to talk about the final chapter in her young adult series based on the life of Elizabeth I. Uh, The book is called Just Flesh and Blood and Jane Caro clearly has a great obsession uh, with this monarch. Um, Very, very soon I'll be playing an interview with author Uh, screenwriter and biologist Margaret Morgan. She's got a new novel out, The Second Cure, a dystopian thriller with a decidedly sciencey bent. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're on 3RRR. The show is Backstory and I'm your host, Mel Cranenberg. Margaret Morgan, welcome to Backstory. Thank you, Mel. Great to be here. So let's talk about your extraordinary book, The Second Cure. I would hesitate to try and describe the plot in full. So would you like to embark upon this? Um, Okay. Well, it's a thriller set in present day and near future Australia. It's um, got a little dash of science fiction in it. And it's about a parasite that mutates, a common parasite that is real, um, and it mutates to start to affect humans in all sorts of interesting ways that are actually based on pretty good science. Um, Some people lose their faith, some people uh, become reckless and risk-taking, more politically progressive. Some people develop massive synesthesia, which is a melding of the different senses. So you might eat something and hear it or you might see colours in letters and things like that. Um, And, yeah, so some people love it, some people hate it. And my protagonist, Charlie Zinn, is a parasitologist and she's seeking a cure and a vaccine for it. And what ultimately happens is that the um, society itself starts to fracture between the people who have it and want to keep it than the people who are determined to keep it out of the population. It's such an interesting premise because there's such a bag of analogies for other things uh, that uh, I guess tides of of political currents uh, that we have you know, a lot of familiarity with really underlie a lot of the, the the ideas that you've got in this book. But I do want to first address one thing as a cat person, uh, because the uh, the the parasite you've chosen to pick on for this particular book is the toxoplasmosis. Um, parasite, which some people may have read recently. I think there was, I remember an article saying, you'll do better in business if you have a cat because, uh, you know, toxoplasmosis is supposed to make you more apt to take risks. That's Uh, right, it does. Yeah, it's a fascinating area of science because it's called host behavioural modification. And although humans are not a really relevant part to the life cycle of the toxoplasmosis parasite, they can be infected. And if you're infected, then it does have real brain changes um, on you. And and that's quite amazing. So, you know, there are correlations between having it and 
increased levels of schizophrenia and there certainly increased chance of um, risk-taking, which is where that study comes in about um, entrepreneurialism. Um, and also people tend to be more sexually active if they've got it. So I, I've used that, that concept and just extended it a little bit. My, my toxoplasmosis I've called pestis, toxoplasmosis pestis, and it's called the cat plague in the in the novel, and it actually kills most of the cats, including wild cats, um, you know, lions and ti- and tigers, and um, and so that's one of the reasons, of course, that as a, a cure is desperately trying to be found because that has massive ecological effects, um, as well as as you know the the obvious emotional effects of people losing their cats. That's right. Which, um, you know, I did note early on. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a sad story about all the cats dying. I'm like, no, it's not. It's not about that at all. Um, But this is a really, it's a fascinating book in the sense that you've really, you really bring out the science. The science is a real character in this book. Uh, And I love that element of it because I started looking things up and going, is that real? And it's like, it's real. There was a whole (laughs) early entry on um, lactase um, and and it was a really wonderful kind of thing that you built up there where you're talking about how the notion of parasites uh, is often kind of framed as something you need to get rid of or it's something that is, you know, hurting you in some way. But the sort of more symbiotic relationship is something we ignore. I mean, we've got mitochondria at the very, you know, core of our cellular level, but you use this idea of cows as cows don't actually eat grass, uh, the bacteria in their stomach do, and they just reap the benefits of that. And then you kind of add on this other layer uh, of humans uh, have kind of cultivated more cows, which may not have survived in such vast numbers because, you know, maybe something in them as well has an effect on our, you know, on our brains too. Yes, yes. I'm I'm really interested in that idea of symbiosis and the fact that, you know, every single organism on the planet has got at least one symbiotic relationship, whether it be a mutualistic one that gives them both benefit or if a, a parasitic one. And, you know, the, that degree of inter interconnectedness of life on Earth, I just find absolutely riveting. And, and I... I use it as a bit of a metaphor in the novel too because I think that those sorts of shifting power dynamics that exist within parasites and mutualists exist in human relationships and in societies generally. So, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, a, yeah, it's something I wanted to explore on a kind of human level as well. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to the author of The Second Cure, Margaret Morgan. Margaret, the characters in this book, as you've so beautifully expressed, have such widely different perspectives on the world and the disease works on that or the you know, the toxoplasmosis works on that. I'm really interested in this because what I immediately thought of when I was looking at this is like Twitter is toxoplasmosis, basically. It is a kind of sociological toxoplasmosis because it it actually allows us to synthesise the things that we already believe in the groups that we join. Is this uh, a rather kind of unsubtle sort of a a parallel to draw? Um, Look, I hadn't thought about Twitter per se, but you know, that kind of connects a little bit with um, the idea that Richard Dawkins had about memes and the idea that memes are ideas that are transmitted in a way that is sem- very similar to um, to genes. You know, like the meme is the... Is the um, 
the unit of information, just like the gene is the unit of information in in, um, biology. And so he's suggesting that memes can be transmitted almost like a virus or, you know, a parasite um, and and affect people. You know, it's sort of, yeah, so I think that there is a way that there is a parallel there for sure. Yeah. And I guess the other thing is that this, um, you know, like a lot of the, the great novels like Camus' The Plague, um, you know, you, you can't avoid this idea of a pandemic uh, as also being a metaphor for great political movements. I mean, that's a, there's a strong literary tradition of considering that, but there's something inherent to that, to pandemics and mm-hmm. political movements, because they're the things that affect people en masse and have probably some of the biggest effects on human life that's right. and how it evolves. Uh, what attracted you to this particular story? Why did you decide to write this? Well, I was I was thinking really about how if you change, if you're like me and you're basically a philosophical materialist and you believe that that the mind is essentially a, um, a product of the brain, um, then if you change the brain, then you change the mind. If you change the mind, you change the individual's behaviour and if you change that, then you're changing society generally. So I was, I was really interested in exploring the idea of some external force changing the brain. Um, and, you know, the parasite is what does that. And, you know, as I got into it, I started to think, well, if this is the case, do we really have free will? You know, I mean, are the people who are infected and whose who's behaviour changes, do they have free will? And if they don't have free will, well, what about everybody else? You know, it's a, it's a really um, wonderful little conundrum. Yeah, it's also that interesting thing of, you know, what is our choice? What is our brain? You know, what makes us us? And I thought that that was really fascinating. But there is something embedded in this that's really a wonderful element, which is that you have a predisposition, I guess. So you're sort of starting with something, with a set of personality traits or with some elements that you are predisposed towards. And this uh, this kind of, you know, invader, I guess, um, synthesises that. It actually actually creates us or makes us more something that we have inherently within us. Yes. Um, so or, or changes something completely, like my character Winnie, who is a very devout Christian and a very good person who who has, I think, would be a good person with or without religion, but she, she has managed to channel or learned to channel her goodness through her religion. And when she loses her religion because she becomes infected, you know, it, it devastates her because she it's it's the structure on which she's sort of essentially created her entire life. So yeah, when when something as major as that is taken away, you know, it's um it's pretty extreme. And that's the sort of stuff I wanted to play with with my characters. Now there's uh, there's quite a lot that happens to your characters and um not all of it is good, let's just say. <laughs> this is not a, a simple narrative at all. It's a complicated and layered and there's numerous characters and uh, numerous arcs that go on throughout this. Um, but I am interested in one element that starts to creep in, which is that there could be a competing um, strain of the virus at some point, let's just say, um, without giving too much of the plot away. Yes. Um, I kind of loved this. So I do want to touch on it because, um, you know, we sort of think of um, the positives um, of, say, empathy, for example, mm. um, versus um, maybe what the toxoplasma element would be which seems to be more about individualism so I felt like you were almost there were almost two um 
two elements kind of at play here. Yes. That there's this, you know, one strain of the virus is about individualism and the other is about empathy um, is kind of what I thought might be evo- you might be evolving towards. Is that something you've um, considered? Yeah, it is. It is. And, and yeah, trying to avoid spoilers here, but, um, but it certainly is a... Um, the, the thing about evolution is it doesn't stand still. And, you know, you might have this parasite emerge or any parasite emerge and you know it's going to change it's going to change it's going to it's going to be affected by all of the pressures in in its environment um and so yeah it's going to it's going to be competitive with other versions of itself it's a really interesting thing reading this book i kind of started to question a lot of things uh thinking about what we take for granted in terms of how we discuss everything from you know emotions to uh, psychological kind of conditions uh, to diseases, but to just everyday life and human interaction. Um, you know, you've really done a wonderful kind of, uh, I guess, um, PR job for <laughs> for these kind of, you know, biological and neuroscience um, elements. There's a lot of hunger for that at the moment. Oh, I that's think, good. <laughs> well, I think it's an interesting thing that for a long time, and particularly notions of the brain were really dominated by the talk sciences, I guess. Um, now we're coming around to this, um, to the neurosciences. And I think that's been helped along, obviously, by people like Oliver Sacks, who writes beautifully in yes. this context, uh, or wrote beautifully, I should say. Um, he's sadly passed away um but i think that you know there's since been other books like the brain that changes itself um mm. and ramachandran yeah absolutely. he's i love his stuff which this is all all of this stuff has really kind of you know galvanized people's interest mm. in um you know in this area of brain science do you see and i think you know as a biologist maybe do you sort of see the two halves kind of coming together i feel like our brains are almost split in a sense between yeah. these these kind of Traditions. Well, I think that I think that what we're going to find down the track is that the things that work, things like um, behavioural modification therapy, I think is that what it's called. Um, I've forgotten now exactly what it is, but the sorts of things where you reframe your experiences and through therapy and start to perceive things differently, force yourself really to see things differently. I think what is happening there is very much based in the neurology. You know, you're kind of reshaping your your neural paths by changing the way you think about something, you know, because it's all feedback. It's it's like it's not, never nature versus nurture. It's always nature and nurture and there's an endless, you know, feedback effect going on there. And I think that a lot of the better ideas in psychiatry and psychology are probably going to be shown to have a very real neurological basis as time goes by. And I, and I love that idea. I love the idea of synthesising that kind of knowledge, mm. you know. And, and yeah, it's, it's the most extraordinary time, you know. It, you sort of look at physics and think, wow, there's just so much amazing research being done at the moment, you know, there's some really fundamental truths. But I think that biology is going to give it a run for its money, you know, as, as the technologies increase and our understanding of the molecular nature of, of life and the and the brain and the yeah i mean it's it's just staggering how much knowledge you know even within my lifetime the amount that's changed in terms of human knowledge and biology is is just extraordinary it's so interesting though because i think in a sense human societies haven't changed that quickly uh you know really mm, yeah. in in relative terms 
we've been kind of slow moving in that sense. And I think I was listening to a podcast talking about how evolution is now better understood that, uh, that basically, um, I think they were using this metaphor of the, of a butterfly. Um, I can't recall where I'm sure that this is something that's better known and I probably should have, uh, looked into it a little bit more than talk before talking about it, but, um, a butterfly that was once white, um, Uh, that almost, you know, overnight became black. Uh, and when it was looked into, this wasn't a a slow evolution. This was a sudden evolution. It was like an evolutionary leap, kind of like how we understand brain development in children now that they have these kind of, you know, periods where they're sort the same, the same, the same, then suddenly in a week they change. Yeah, punctuated equilibrium, that probably is what you're thinking of. It's it's this idea that, that the changes that occur are not gradual in evolution. They're really um, rapid and cataclysmic often. And that's um, that was something that Darwin really didn't like. He, he liked the idea of evolution being a very gradual thing. And I think I mentioned in the book there the, the differences between the way that scientists over the years have perceived things and how it reflects their own political situation you know and there was there was Darwin at the time of um you know the English revolution and stuff and and being concerned about the um about the 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 structures of the ruling class you know he was married to the Wedgwood family and had a lot of interest in being you know in in society sort of staying with the same kind of class structure and so I think that that the idea of revolutionary change probably really terrified him, and so you know that reflects in his in the way that he perceived evolutionary theory. It's um, it's really interesting. I'm not quite sure how I got to that point. Oh no, well, that, but this is, <laughs> I I love this conversation because this is the book really. Like it is, you know. And I don't want to for a second suggest that this is just, you know, a litany, litany of different scientific ideas. You've actually very much got a narrative through here, yeah. characters that you care about. It's a real, really a thriller. It is really a thriller. Um, but, it, you know, it really doesn't end up where you expect at all from the beginning. Um, you know, it sort of starts out uh, with, uh, you know, obviously the scientist kind of discovering that her husband um, is having all these symptoms and then uh, her partner rather, and then it goes on from there. And I think as it kind of gets deeper and deeper and deeper, you get more of a sense of this world, which, uh, you know, like many of these kind of, um, you know, dystopian thrillers uh, is set in a world that is slightly in the future. I must say there are going to be some parallels drawn with Handmaiden's Tale, I think. Yes, I think there Um, probably will be. Why is it that, and it's a really interesting element here, you sort of talk about the conservative brain and how that is affected in a very particular way by the toxoplasmosis uh, here or by thought generally, yes. um, that it's like, uh, you know, trying to shut things down so that the status quo remains. Um, that gets quite aggressive in this oh, yeah. in this kind of uh, think piece that you've written. Can you talk a little bit about that element? Yeah, well, essentially my, my far-right dystopic Christian fascist dictatorship of um, Capricornia (laughs) exists because that it becomes a magnet for people who are determined not to be infected and so it one of its major goals is to stop anybody being able to bring the disease into the into that country once because it becomes a country once it's seceded from the rest of Australia Um, and so they yeah it's kind of like um magnifying the effect of that you know if you imagine what it would be like if if all of the you know the the far right 
Christian lobby of Australia all decided they were going to live together, what kind of a place would that be? I mean, I think it's an automatic dystopia. Um, and, uh, and so you've got, of course, there are going to be various groups that are going to be particularly um, troubled by it. And, you know, I mean, as far as The Handmaid's Tale is concerned, it's a similar thing. You know, I think that that patriarchal societies have always co-opted religion as a means to maintain control over women and women's reproduction. It's it's kind of like they've evolved in tandem. And, um, and the Margaret Atwoodian kind of dystopian uh, novel came out of this idea of a drop in fertility, um, which mm. may have been a kind of prevalent concern as well in the in the 1980s. Uh, so yours instead has used this idea of, you know, of a plague. Um, but I guess really, you know, when it comes down to it, it's, you know, I guess our modern world's version of it within our, you know, Western democracies, wealthy Western democracies is terrorism. That's yeah. been used as this kind of idea of a, an, of a threat, an existential threat yes. um, that has led to the similar polarising that you describe. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that, you know, right-wing authoritarian governments are totally dependent upon fear and if they have to manufacture that fear then fine they'll do it they'll demonize a minority group to make that um to to create that fear and then to provide the solution which is of course cracking down you know Mm. more rules more laws but the irony is the intention of uh, of of terrorism is exactly that. It's mm. to play on exactly yes. that mechanism. So Absolutely. it's a very opposite um, parallel that you've created. I'm not sure. <laughs> I kind of felt like there had to be some intention um, and reference to that given that we're living through this age. Mm. Oh, there definitely is, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of... There's, a, there's a, a scene kind of early in the second half in the future where a mother is... is has her children ripped away from her at a at a border, you know? And when that started happening in the United States, I was just like, whoa. <laughs> mm. I hope I'm not going to... I hope all the things that I've written don't come true. <laughs> well, I have to say Australia's track record is probably even oh, worse than absolutely. that. absolutely, yeah. 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 But, but, you know, the very sort of specific image of, of mm. a baby being taken from a mother's arms, you know, it really kind of hit me very hard when yeah, I saw absolutely. that that's really happening. But yes, Australia completely, yeah, and that's always been part of my thinking behind it. Well, thank you, uh, Margaret Morgan, for your book. I really definitely hope Capricornia never comes to pass um, but I am deeply fascinated by many of the ideas that you've brought to light in this book uh, and some of the wonderful kind of scientific elements. Um, I really hope people get out there and um, and get involved. It's a, it's a great great read. It's a great thriller as well, I have to say. Well done. Thank you so much. It's been great to be here. Three Triple R Um, waiting here with me in the studio very patiently is author, feminist, columnist and public figure Jane Caro. And Jane is not shy about sharing her obsession with Queen Elizabeth I, a woman who held the reins of the English kingdom more successfully than any male monarch. I don't think anyone's going to argue with that um, summation. Um, Jane joins me now to discuss the latest in her series of YA novels written from Elizabeth's perspective. Uh, This book is called Just Flesh and Blood. Jane Caro, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I am... um, 
I'm really taken with this series. You've actually written a number of books now. I think this is the third it's in the, the third series. third and I'm afraid the final. Spoiler a, alert, she dies <laughs> at the end. There is quite a melancholy air to it uh, because it's written, you know, about the final moments, as you say, of her, of her reign as she's kind of basically gradually dimming Mm. and it's actually I found it really moving because this is very much a lot of flashback as well you write uh you know these moments when she's sort of you know really noticing the small things around her and kind of reflecting on her life as a whole uh it's quite it's quite moving and there's a lot I want to talk to you about but I really do want to start with the beginning of this all which is why are you obsessed with Elizabeth I? <laughs> I think I, I've been obsessed with her for as long as I can remember, so I don't know when it started. But I think it was because um, when I was young and I was a child in the 60s, there really were no or very few female heroines. And the ones that there were, were they either came to a sticky end like Joan of Arc, you know, those kinds of people, or they were kind of reviled like Catherine the Great who was seen as promiscuous and made love to her horse and, you know, so there was all this awful stuff. Or they, they were soppy like, you know, Florence Nightingale and the Lady with the Lamp, though, of course, she wasn't actually soppy. And the Catherine the Great was greatly maligned for yes, that as well. It's totally. completely untrue. But when you're a kid, you, you don't know how to make those judgments and so you just... Try. I remember actively looking to find female heroes, and Elizabeth was the one that I found who was who wielded power and was pretty universally thought of wielding it well, given the limitations of her time. But also, she was so unusual. You know, she she refused to marry. She refused to have children. She did it entirely on her own. So she became this sort of thing. Because when I was a kid, you know, it was quite unexceptional for the boys that I grew up with to say, well, girls just aren't as bright as... They're just not as clever as boys. And if you tried to argue with them, they'd say, oh, tell me a woman who's ever done anything then, you know. And it was really hard to think of anybody. But I clung to Elizabeth like a kind of beacon. But in fact, uh, it was in Melbourne that I really got an insight. That was my conscious understanding of why I obsessed. But I got a real insight from a young woman who was at a a writer's festival gig I did a few years ago um, when I launched the first in the trilogy, Just a Girl. She was very um, young, might have been 12, you know, and she said to me, did you realise you were rewriting the Cinderella myth? And I looked at her and I said, no, but you're absolutely right. That is exactly what it is. And I said, and you've now given me insight into why she's always been such a hero of mine, and that is because the Cinderella myth is the neglected, despised girl um, who finds a prince who rescues her. Elizabeth I, when she was a young princess, was a, no doubt at all a neglected and despised girl. But she grew up, became her own prince and rescued herself. Absolutely. It's a really, you know, thinking about this while you're talking, I was, I was considering that, you know, thinking about the Western tra- tradition and particularly, obviously, uh, a lot of the places that the British colonised really took their system of governance mm-hmm. uh, and so were reflecti- reflective of it. It's really interesting that the leaders we've chosen have been men. Uh, but the leaders that were, you know, given the place by birth uh, through happenstance, that were the most successful in the yeah. British tradition were all women and remain so. The longest serving, the ones that have been deemed to be the most, uh, you know, able in the role. 
And yet they're the ones that weren't chosen. And I think that's what I was really kind of meditating on. It was like, where did we get this idea that actually, you know, there were no, that women couldn't hold power when actually the examples of them, including Catherine the Great, Mm. were people who managed to do things, you know, regardless of what we think about, I suppose, now, in terms of just the awfulness of those those periods of history in terms of what it did to the world and to other nations. Mm. Um, by the the reckoning of the time or even times later on, they were incredibly successful rulers. Uh, so it's sort of interesting that our perceptions uh, remain skewed for a long time about female abilities in power to the point that in democratic kind of modes in when we elect our leaders, we don't choose to elect them. Absolutely. I'd say that we haven't come a very long way. Um, We still have deeply ingrained prejudices against the idea of women wielding power. We've become more comfortable with them being, you know, second in command to a man like Julie Bishop second in command, we like her. Um, Julia Gillard, when she was second in command, we liked her. When she became the Prime Minister, we all decided we hated her. But I think Hillary Clinton's the best example. When she was Secretary of State for President Obama, she was funky Hillary with a Blackberry. She got a 69% approval rating by the time she left office. She was the most popular woman in America. Then she stood for president in her own right. Oh, she's shrill Hillary, kill Hillary. You know, we hate her. So we have this ingrained idea that women should put other people's needs ahead of their own. They should, and, and I think Elizabeth was kind of clever about that because she refused to marry or ever have children. In a way, she did two things. The first was she didn't have other people's needs to put ahead of her own, so she couldn't be d- disapproved of on that basis. Mind you, at that time, they were quite overt about their prejudice. They just thought that women were inferior. They just, that was the belief. Um, and they had made no apologies for thinking that. But she's, and by remaining a virgin and being very public about her virginity, I think she made herself almost into an intersex person Mm -hmm. for that time. I think that part of the uh, misogyny, and look, this is just my theory about it, I've got no data or research to prove it, but part of the misogyny that's lasted so long is to do with male conflict about their own sexuality. And what they do is they project that that fear they have of their own sexuality, even the self-disgust and self-loathing they may have, particularly if they come out of, you know, Judeo-Christian culture, which is very anti-sex, and they project that onto women. They basically disown their own bad feelings about themselves and say it's those women there. And I think the hatred of homosexuality comes out of the same place, the idea of men behaving like women, you know, having sex in that way, oh, oh, oh. And I think that therefore misogyny is actually a form of self-hatred which is projected onto the other gender. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's also that kind of justification, uh, which is sort of a reverse engineered justification. Um, Someone who holds power will then create a narrative that enables them to maintain that. Uh, So I think that that's, you know, very much the case uh, when it comes to things like literal power, mm-hmm. um, you know, of a, well, all of its literal power, but, you know, powerful institutions and being the heads of them, you know, to come up with reasons why you can't then admit these other groups that are disadvantaged, whether that be women or people of colour oh, or... Anyone, you know, yeah. Exactly. Anyone different. Well, the current uh, narrative, I think, that is doing exactly that is this idea of merit um, whenever people put forward quotas for women in positions of power because... Um, 
the argument is now, oh, no, we have to promote people on merit. Well, that would be nice, but we've never done it in the past. And people keep forgetting that there was a 100% quota that operated in favour of men for about 2,000 years uh, and they weren't promoted on merit at all. So, And that was, the, and, and we've just forgotten that. That doesn't suit our narrative. So you're absolutely right. We've forgotten all of that and now we talk about quotas as if they're a brand-new idea and these <sighs> dreadful women are trying to do it instead of gaining merit. Hmm. <laughs> Rubbish. No, you're history, people. That's why I write historical fiction because history matters. It tells us what the truth is and what the lies are. <laughs> That's great. Thank you, uh, Jane Caro. Uh, if you've just joined us, you're listening to 3 Triple R. The show is Backstory, a show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm talking at the moment to author Jane Caro about her book, Just Flesh and Blood, which is a young adult book that describes the life of uh, Elizabeth I, or rather in this case, the death of Elizabeth Mm. I, uh, her final uh, chapter, I guess. I do want to remind you, though, before I begin our chat again um, with Jane, that today is the last day of the Radiothon season. You have until 5pm to get on the blower. Uh, Call us on 93881027 or to go online uh, to rr.org.au to subscribe, uh, renew your subscription, subscribe for the first time. Uh, You know, if you want, hand over a little bit of a donation if you can afford that. Uh, You could subscribe for your pets as well, like include that in there as well if you want to. Um, You could win huge and amazing prizes. They're all up on the website. I really encourage you to have a look, to browse through and think about what you can get there. But you're helping to support things like this show uh, where I get to talk to amazing guests like Jane Caro. Jane, I do want to talk about the craft of your book. Uh, We do talk about that quite a bit on this show. and. I'm fascinated by how you research this because you obviously, there is a lot on the public record about Elizabeth. There are a lot of ways you could have gone into it, uh, but you have really chosen quite a detailed approach, incredibly detailed. You go into these chapters of her life, you give a lot of historical fact, and then you colour it with her perspective. So Mm. talk to me about your process with gathering this information and then, you know, through the magic of writing, (laughs) turning it into a historical novel. Yeah. I was very particular about sticking to the history. It mattered to me that the history was accurate. Now, some things there's rumours or there's legends and I'm a novelist so I claim the right, I'm not a biographer, uh, to use those if they worked for me. But then I didn't make them up. There are a few episodes in the three books that I have actually literally made up but very few. Almost all, I mean, meetings and casual conversations and things like that but basically... Uh, her life was so jam-packed with drama, with glamour, with excitement, with plotting, with political shenanigans, with uh, resisting a man for, you know, decades and decades and decades, um, with a rivalry with the cousin she never met, Mary Queen of Scots. Um, I don't see her mother had her head chopped off by her father. I mean, for goodness sake... How could you improve on that as a novelist? So I started out from the perspective that I I was going to play pay due deference to the truth. Um, 
But what I what really motivated me, and I think I perhaps approached doing this in the way an actor might if they were tasked with pay, playing the role, my question was what would it have been like to be her? Because she was a real person. She's often presented to us almost as a kind of brand and I suppose because I come out of an advertising background that really kind of um, made me think twice about it. And I didn't go to primary sources. I did go to the UK. I did. I was lucky enough to see an exhibition of things that she had owned at Greenwich uh, Museum, and I also did visit Hatfield and I visited Hampton Court and you know various great houses that are part of her life. But um, so I got the sense of the places that still exist. Most an awful lot of them don't that she would have known. But um, I use secondary sources primarily biographies and I list them all in the three books because I want anyone who gets an interest from reading these novels to be able to explore further. I have to admit I did uh, take a, take a look through that and then went, stop, you'll go down the rabbit hole, Jake <laughs> That's right, you will go down the rabbit hole but it's a fascinating rabbit hole. Mm. And um, she does have a well-documented life which also makes it quite you know, easy. I felt in a way um, when I started writing these books that I was cheating because I didn't have to make up a plot. But the good thing about that was it liberated me to really get inside the skin of this woman who's telling us the story of her life. And she tells it to us at three different points in her life. So first is when she's waiting in the Tower of London to be crowned Queen of England the next day. um, And she's wondering how she survived her childhood, what she's learnt and how she's going to rule a kingdom. The next one is when she finds out that Mary Queen of Scots has been executed because she signed the death warrant but she never actually gave the order and uh, she then had a walking nervous breakdown. I don't make that up. That actually happened. Uh, It's about her looking back and saying, how did I get to this place where I never wanted to end up? How did that happen to me? And the third one, as you say, is her on her death cushions. Um, resisting going to bed and looking I back. Lo- I do love that. She's just like, you can't tell me what to do. Holding on to that, I'm not just, you know, the you know monarch that's about to, like, pass away. I am going to own this until the end. She would. She's refusing letting anyone take her to bed uh, to die there. She's going to stay on her cushions. I just thought that was delightful. Little detail. It's also true. Really? Yes. That's great. That is great. absolutely True. I didn't make that up. That's the thing. I, you know, I didn't have to make that up. It's like the story too at the very end where she ins- wears her mother's old necklace in the portrait of the whole family, the dynastic Tudor portrait, which still exists. I didn't make that up either. It's quite a political statement that as well, I thought, because, you know, obviously she had to tread a fine line with uh, saying that maybe her father didn't do the right thing in uh you know, murdering essentially murdering her mother. Her mother, uh, uh, absolutely. And there's no recorded instance that I could find of her ever uttering her mother's name. But she wore a ring with her mother's portrait hidden in it. And of course, there are these instances, and all her mother's relatives, the Careys and people like that, she promoted and gave. So you get a strong sense. She never speaks, but by her actions, she clearly had a strong loyalty to the memory of her mother. That's really, it's a beautiful detail. Yeah. I am interested in the language choice in this book uh jane you've you've chosen to go with something that's probably not elizabethan english obviously (laughs) but you've tried to give it a sort of archaic feel so that we feel like we're entering the past Uh, and i think you've done that admirably the views expressed at the time uh you've tried to keep intact so you're 
not trying to look at this through a modern filter. You're actually looking at it as they would have. Yeah. Um, so that's keeping all the prejudices and views of the day intact. And I think that's really important because obviously you're trying to see how she would see things. Uh, and she's interesting because the language that she uses is always like, I might just be a woman, but in fact, I'm a prince. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the most famous speech uh, gets... Uh, reiterated in here where she talks about having is it the heart and the stum- stomach of a king, of a king. <laughs> and a king of England too and I, I really did note that you know that you've kind of constantly used her referrals to herself as a prince um, mm. to enforce that power it reminded me how important language is uh, in you know, re, in redressing, in changing views about who we are and how, how gender is played out in spaces, we thinking about that while you were doing it, as much as you were trying to colour this with the view of the day, were you thinking about, you know, what she, within the context of her life, was trying to do around that? Yes, probably, but not quite consciously. Uh, the, the the process of writing these things is always an unconscious. You sort of, I, I know a lot of people have talked about, you, you feel like the voice enters you uh, almost. And, and I would have to say that is exactly how it felt. Um, but I think too, I understood it. I think that, that it's a very modern dilemma still, that women still watch what they say. They think about... You know, I'm, that makes me really angry. How do I express that anger? I mean, I'm thinking of Uma Thurman, you know, in the Me Too thing where she was asked, you know, do you have anything to say about this? And she said through gritted teeth, yes, I do, but I'm not going to say it while I'm so angry. I'm going to wait till I've calmed down. And she waited about five months before she spoke. Uh, women do a lot of that. They do a lot of thinking, hang on, what's the most effective way of putting this? Um what, that was what was so, to me, uh, extraordinary about Serena Williams, not that she behaved badly or threw a hissy fit, but that she had the courage to do so mm-hmm. as a woman of colour and, uh, you know, wow, because we never hear that. And slammed for Uh-oh. doing what, you know, so, so many, many men. men have done all the time. All the time, I grew up in the back and row era. I'm like, yeah. that was freaking every match for that dude. And, then, you know, I'm like... And they people just lost their minds over it. It's like there was a woman and she, and she yelled. Was black and she got angry and she was mean to another woman. How dare she? <gasps> Women are supposed to be nice. Um and although I, she wasn't mean to her opponent, was oh, she? She was no. very in the end she, she was, was gracious. extremely gracious. But anyway. And she cared for it. So exactly. But I don't think that the dilemma Elizabeth faced was any different in a way. Obviously it's couched differently, but she was constantly having to think about the fact. I am a woman, this puts me at a disadvantage. Now there are ways that I can turn it into an advantage. Being a virgin was one. Um, the, other, the other way was as she got older, and I, um, there's a speech that's called the Golden Speech. It's not as well known as the um, Tilbury one. But she, um, it's the last one she ever gave to her parliament. And she speaks as a mother speaking to beloved children. And there was a sense in which... She was very, very clever about using her femaleness uh, for advantage when it worked and dropping it completely and claiming the mantle of a prince, so the role, a male role, when it worked for her. Mm. The thing I've always admired about her, and I tried to communicate this as much as possible, is even though she was a deeply emotional person, she wrote a number of poems, two of which I quote in the um, second of the books, but... She applied her intelligence to her life. 
which is something we still don't encourage women to do. We're content now to have them apply it to their work, but we still want women to be kind of carried away by love and, you know, putting other people's needs first and being really romantic and bloody do lally, you know. And in fact, Elizabeth never did. Elizabeth sat there and went, How's I, how do I make this work better for me? Mm. And I think that that's actually a model. I think I want young women and young men to read this book and think, actually, that's sensible. You know what? It's sort of interesting, isn't it? I was thinking about, a, um, I can't think of, it, of their name off the top of my head, but someone who calls themselves a gender capitalist. And I thought that was as much as, you know, capitalism is deeply flawed. Um, Everything's it did deeply a, flawed. That's right. <laughs> It did occur to me that that is, you know, a fair way of looking at gender, that to use the elements that suit you in a given situation in these completely spurious uh, views of what we are as people based somehow on our biology. Well, the contents of our knickers, apparently. Right, exactly. <laughs> I've always wanted to be judged for the contents of my character. Yeah, well, I think that's what's interesting, as you say, in what Elizabeth did, um, by removing the element uh, that binds her or bound her to her biology in people's perception, which is the ability to bear a child. Uh, She removed that element that made her essentially what people viewed as female. And so in that sense, she could play with those roles. She could say, you know, I can can switch on you. She was gender fluid. Yeah, and I think it must have really, as you say, worked for her. But I think I'm thinking about a scene early on when... um, and she was quite successful in mostly avoiding conflicts, uh, literal kind of wars, mm. uh, which, you know, obviously... Uh, she was very you, reluctant to fight wars. She hated reluctant. it. She Cost did. her money. Cost <laughs> her money, which I think is very prudent and you, mm. and you outline that and, and make that very clear that that was an essential part of what made her her reign so successful was not just wasting money on these kind of hubristic um, mm. and, you know... Macho, rubbish. Yeah, bullshit. Um, So she's kind of at one stage in a war council with her advisors and they're basically just mansplaining her uh-huh. and I'm like there's no way that Henry Henry would have just lopped off their heads and she's shrewd in that sense she goes actually you know what I'm gonna let them step over that line because I think I can use this to my advantage I can I can play on these things and it means that they can let off steam and it was it seemed really sensible to me because I think that the way you've described it, if it is in fact how she did things in reality, it it alleviated any likelihood that her reign would be questioned. Uh, She was allowing people an opportunity to feel hurt, I guess. Uh, Maybe that meant that they weren't likely to kind of rise against her. It was a really interesting... I even thought, you know, you're describing... um, you know, that she wasn't actually the person that gave the order to kill Mary. There was There's some historical debate about that, that she sort of washed her hands of it after the fact and it was all done in secret. But on the public surface, certainly that's what um, was said, that's what you've rolled with. Uh, she could very well have, like, then executed the person that did this. Oh, she threw him into the tower. Yeah. And but... she banished William Cecil. She had a complete... I, I think it's really interesting that there's, oh, maybe she did it in secret. Well, maybe, but we have to go on the evidence. There is actually no evidence that she did it in secret. There is a whole lot of evidence that she was dragged to the point where she had to do this and she and she, what she was, and it was really interesting and it's taught me something, she actually was someone who didn't take action unless she had to. So she just sat on things and it drove the blokes crazy because they were all for action. But her view was, if I don't have to do anything, I'm not doing anything. And 
that was went with war and it went with executing people. When she first had to, her first execution of someone of kind of uh, senior uh, rank was the Duke of Norfolk and they had to rebuild the scaffold because for 13 years it had lain dormant. She hadn't executed anybody because she wasn't bloodthirsty. She didn't want to do it but also she'd do it if she had to. She wasn't a coward in that way. I mean, I'm not saying she should have executed them but nevertheless. But I think it's absolutely arguable that she dithered and procrastinated rather than actually give the order because in a way she knew someone else would do it and that's what she wanted to happen. Now she had a practically nervous breakdown once the deed was done but she even asked people and we know this, she asked people to murder her on the quiet. She wasn't good in that way. Mm. She did say to the guy who guarded Mary, the last of her sort of um, jailers, can't you just you know, get rid of her on the quiet so I don't have to do this? It wasn't that, it wasn't that she was kind it was that she didn't want to wear what she knew was going to be but the it was opprobrium. an interesting thing because she obviously needed to uh you know somehow keep the catholics on side because she didn't want another you know insurrection of any sort so it was it was kind of a masterful move regardless of whether or not she did secretly order it um i have to ask you jane caro now that uh you've played out the life of elizabeth the first now that you have written her final chapter who will you write about next <laughs> Yes. Um, well, I'm just doing a non-fiction book at the moment with MUP um, called Accidental Feminist, which is about my generation of women um, and what's worked out for us and what hasn't worked out for us in terms of we're revolutionary. We're the first generation of women ever in, in the history of the world to have earned our own money for most of our lives. So I'm deep into that at the moment. But I have been playing with Mary Wollstonecraft in the back of my mind. She's a little known figure, but she wrote Vindication of the Rights of Woman. She's the first woman who, first person who ever kind of articulated that women might be humans and, you know, need... Imagine that. Yeah, I know. Was it, it's actually, there's probably going to be a bit of renewed interest in Mary Wollstonecraft Mary Wollstonecraft because uh, the biopic of her daughters... That's right, uh, Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, perhaps a better known book than The Vindication of the Rights of Woman. Definitely read that if you mm. haven't. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary book that was written, was it in the late 1700s? By an 18-year-old girl. Oh, it's insane. It's, and it's insane. Mary Wollstonecraft tragically gave died giving birth to Mary Shelley, who was Mary Godwin, at the, when she was born. And so there is this real, um, really interesting um, reality of women's lives at that time that I would love to to explore from the perspective perhaps of both mother and daughter, but I'm a bit nervous about it because um, Mary Shelley in particular has a very strong voice already and I don't know that I could mimic that. Maybe I'd have to just put that aside and say she's going to have the voice I give her for this particular purpose. Who knows? Maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. I think it's a really interesting one because I think a lot of the ideas that we now embrace, really she pioneered uh, in oh. writing. So I think, you know, those figures, as you say, uh, Jane Curry, growing up as a young woman, um, you didn't get the chance to read about these great historical figures. It's wonderful to see you actually resurrecting them uh, to their rightful places uh, in our collective minds. Thank you, Jane Curry, for joining me on Backstory and sharing the story of Elizabeth I. Thank you very much for having me. Quick shout out for a little event I'm doing at Victorian State Library uh, for La Trobe University, me and Anne Mann, talking about feminism as an unfinished project, uh, particularly referencing older women. That's great. Thank you so much, Jane. 11th of October. 11th of October. Three, triple, R. Ah.
You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show, Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.